At First Commonwealth Bank, we understand that many of today's businesses are facing uncertain times. And that means there's no more important time for having the right financial partner behind you. A partner with the resources and experience to help take care of your business. An SBA preferred lender who can see what others may not and do what others cannot. If you're ready to talk with a financial partner who can help your business today and into the future, there's no better time to talk with us. First Commonwealth Bank, member FDIC. Sub loads of pain and welcome to the right side of the pond. It is Friday and we're back in 1995 for In Your House 4, coming live to you from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Um, of course, the fourth pay-per-view of the In Your House series and indeed the first pay-per-view to take place in Canada since WrestleMania 6. So five oh, years. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, interesting one, isn't it? Because they'd go back basically once a year after that. Um, so quite an interesting one, interesting show. Um Particularly, I, I guess when I was watching it earlier on, the thing that really stood out to me was how much the real life Shawn Michaels uh, injuries from being beaten up by Marines in a bar because he was being a drunken twat towards them. Um, how much that actually affected the show because it, mm. it basically from the very beginning they they do just do the reality era on it and then they're just like yeah he got beaten up so we've had to replace him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I suppose there was no hiding the fact that I, I mean, obviously I wasn't really, um, I would have only been about six years old at the time. So I certainly wasn't attuned to the nuances of profession, professional wrestling. Um, was maybe it was well known that he was beaten up by Marines in a bar at the time. So they felt that they couldn't hide it. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they, they, you know, they, what they were always good at doing at this point, I guess was, was kind of, vague narrative sometimes and it feels like yeah he got beaten up outside and they spin it into a into making him a, a sympathetic uh, character rather than a dickhead um when he was really just a dickhead um but they sort of you know they do this whole skit don't they where he has to give up the title without defending it and so on and so forth so um they 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 adapt effectively even though i think of all the shows in new gen it's this one that feels like it's got the most uh, negative face of the click running the show behind the scenes, if that makes sense. Like, it feels like it's got their influence all over it. It's interesting because, like, in a way, the fact that it was Razor V. Dean Douglas works out better because they were feuding at the previous show. Um, and so it's... It, I mean, obviously, I, I hadn't caught up with the TVs um, as well as watching the show, so I'm not totally sure about this, but... But, you know, it seems like um, uh, the idea of, of, of Sean, um, you know, challenging for that, you know, for that title is kind of, um, yeah, it's kind of better that it's Razor. But then, as you say, like that match is a bit of a squash, really, particularly when you compare it to the one they had the previous show. Um, and, you know, I mean, I guess soon after this, Dean Douglas was kind of no more with the company and was back with uh, back with ECW. So it's um, certainly leaves a bit of a sour taste. And the main event's got its got its flaws as well. Yeah, it's the like you say, it's the fact that it feels like Dean Douglas really doesn't get an opportunity to really show the best of what he could do. Um but there's also a sense of, of everybody in the clique, even though at this point they're all babyfaces, all acting a bit 
heelish yeah and all being and all and basically there's a sense of shameless indulgence about about it all and you can, i just think it watches like a show where you could tell who's holding the the creative leverage backstage and who gets to um flex their own individual muscle a bit more in terms of their creative output and there is something <clears throat> mainly through the treatment of dean douglas on the show um and the angle that they do um you know it's not like he gets an opportunity to get a quick victory over an injured sean or uh you know or even get a sh- get a one night title reign by beating razor or anything like that it's just he's 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 utterly routed and like mm. you say isn't really a thing after this uh, and then when you combine that with the fact that you have this group of top baby faces all basically acting <clears throat> excuse me all basically acting like heels it uh <clears throat> it does well as you could tell uh, make one balk a little bit yeah, and, and you know, like the other thing to bear in mind is that fact that uh, uh, you know, having him be the champion, Dean Douglas, for the just for the length of the match, mm. you know, it's that it's that kind of thing. You know, if that if that had happened, let's say that happened to Daniel Bryan, and <laughs> you know, it's like it's it's almost it's not all that dissimilar to the eighteen seconds thing in some senses. Um, particularly given how Seamus was seen by people as, you know, as being a, a, a company man or a company choice. Um, so, yeah, it's it's something which definitely wouldn't fly nowadays. And and it's interesting to think as well that, you know, Bulldog had just turned heel and then Diesel's in the main event kind of trying to be edgy up against him, which, again, as you say, it's a, uh, it's a, yeah, it's a good match, but it didn't really need that about it. It needed Diesel to be more of a sort of straightforward hero, I think. Yeah, there's there's just a sense of them all. Um, I mean, it's 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 when you start to think about the click and you see where they go just a couple of years after this as well. Um, you know, you really see the the beginnings of um, a culture that's sort of reached its zenith now, where if you're a babyface, you're either overpushed or you're just deeply uncool, uh, and it feels like the, the origins of that um, are kind of rooted around this time when you get these guys. Basically, you get the impression, I don't know them, obviously, but uh, getting the impression of them just being themselves. And the problem is that, that, that they seem so obsessed with wanting to be the cool kids uh, that they're not really playing to their roles. Um, and it's, you know, I praise New Gen to, to the heavens, and I think the character arcs survive that kind of thing. And I think that the matches, it's not like the matches are terrible for it. But it does create um, a bit of an ingratiating tone to uh, their output. I think this is the the worst example of that. I don't think it's the only one, but I think this is the point at which it's it's sort of at its worst. And I think that um, once you get into the summer night six, when Razor and, Diesel, Razor and Diesel aren't there anymore, it kind of uh, it kind of um, is alleviated a little bit. And certainly by the time Brett comes back, you know. But even when Brett comes back, you and I, and I've said this before about Sean's title reign in night six, you still get the sense that he's straining against the leash and wanting to be something they've not positioned him as. Uh, and when you then like I say, spread that out among the entire click, and then you've got the entire click all over the top of the product, it starts to become quite self-evident. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, it's fair to say that um, their frustrations backstage and their conversation with Vince, I mean, I think in the beginning of it, they genuinely thought this was better for the product for it to evolve um, into something a bit edgier. And as we said, it was gradually going that way anyway, um, through 95 and you, you can evidence that in various 
different ways. I mean, not least the uh, the match we'll look at um, from Seasons Beatings kind of coming up soon. Um, and the, the table bump we're going to look at uh, next week as well. Th- there are always these things which are coming up which show that, that, that New Gen's getting edgier. And I think, you know, what the click wanted to do in terms of making their characters a bit more tweener-ish, well, you know, that would undoubtedly carry WWF to enormous success um, through the next few years, you know, and, and if you look at Austin and Rock and, you know, they were all guys that, that um, Jericho as well, they were all guys that kind of were not traditional baby faces. And so, you know, it wasn't necessarily evolution, but like with all of these things, um, it takes them a bit of time to get it right. And it's interesting that it wasn't those characters that really got it right because Hunter had his greatest success as the most traditional heel that, yeah, a, heel, that a heel can be. Um, so, and you get, and you, I mean, you watch, we're skipping forward here, but you watch 97 and you watch Sean when he turns heel in 97, you get the similar impression that had he not have injured his back and stuck around, it would have been very much the same thing for him. He'd have been, you know, as traditional a bad guy as there was in wrestling, the sneaky, cowardly, you know, villain. And years later, we saw that sort of thing pulled. I think you could, it would be fair to say, when Seth was champion in 2015, um, and that was a very straightforward, um, you know, old school. Uh, villainous performance and people kind of reject was were rejecting it out of hand by that point but uh, and it's not to say that the the anti-hero wouldn't like you say wouldn't have happened if the click weren't doing this at the time it's simply me pointing out that uh, at this particular time even though things are getting edgy there is still a sense of their actions being odds with uh their um their their I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Their sort of adopted role, I guess. Um, I don't know. It's it's a difficult thing to describe, but I think if you sit and watch it, it's it's it it's fairly evident that the the sensations that come to you, um, and it's I mean it's not just you know it's the way that they act. It's the the whole Dean Douglas thing. I think that there's a a match where uh, Kid and Razor basically get the last laugh over the smoking guns um, at the end of it. And it becomes all about them rather than, you know, the, the, the smoking guns who win the match, you know, there's just a sense of everything being tilted and angled and reframed to be about them. And, you know, I mean, they're ultimately the top stars of the company. So it's not like you would, you would necessarily expect anything else, but it does feel especially strong armed on this show. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, and it's much more obvious watching it as a, you know, contemporary wrestling fan that knows all that stuff. I'm not yeah. sure if it was quite so obvious at the time. Sure, um, yeah. But it's certainly, yeah, like watching with the kind of, uh, with historical hindsight, you can absolutely see them, see their fingerprints all over it. Um, and I know, you know, Brett's got a lot to say in his book about this particular time period as well. Um, so let's, let's have a look Brett at... with a lot to say yeah quite um, and about the click uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's have a look at, um, at, at in fact the one of the click members uh, the junior member at this time Hunter Hurst Elmsley um, who of course we saw um, up against oh, we did this last week didn't we we forgot who was up against uh, Bob Holly <laughs> yes. yeah a couple of weeks uh, back or a couple of months back as we are in the actual year we're in um, and he's up against Fatu here, of course, 
um, later uh, the Sultan and later Rikishi. <laughs> um, so it's it's interesting that they they kept um, trying to find a role for uh, for Fatu and then eventually found him one. Um, but they tried various things through New Gen to break him out as a singles guy, and uh, I guess this is the first uh, the first go at it. It's a really good match. I mean, he's obviously much smaller here than he was when he um, was Rikishi, and so he's he's a lot more mobile. And um, not that Rikishi was not mobile anyway, really, but he's a lot more mobile, and it's it's quite a fast paced match, and um, it, it's good curtain jerk affair, really. Yeah, absolutely. What one of the things that I find really fascinating about this is that you know it's it's one of Triple H's first pay per view matches, uh, and from the very beginning you get this kind of this this mix of the the very old school sensibility that are he's famously kind of passionate about um though you won't think it watching NXT um and uh, mixed with a, a a very slight sort of germ of a tone that would come to the forefront of main event wrestling during the attitude era you know it sort of feels like two parts brawl to one part wrestling and it's fascinating to me especially when I first watched this, to see Helmsley kind of doing that before his more famous, arguably more successful contemporaries were doing it in, in the form of Rock and Austin. Um, and, and seeing him kind of, uh, as, as this early stage in his career, beginning to, to kind of wrestle matches that you could easily see happening, you know, a couple of years later in 97 when that era was beginning to properly gestate. So uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Fatu proves his worth as a singles competitor. He's rocking the whole uh, kind of, um, you know, do positive things. And I forget what the, there's, there's, isn't there a slogan on his jacket or something? I forget what it is now. Um, where it's all about helping out the community and stuff. Kind of a hangover from men on a mission in a lot of ways. Mm, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, he seems to suit him and it, and it allows him to show his personality a bit. And uh, you can see he's charismatic even at this point. Um, so, yeah, it's like you say, good, fun opening match. And, of course, sets up uh, a little bit of a, a future tussle between Helmsley and, and Henry O. Godwin as well after after events conclude. Yeah, it's, it's, a, good, it's a good bit of traditional pro wrestling setup that it's um you know godwin comes down at the end of the match with a slot bucket and uh hilariously helmsley then who king has been praising throughout the match grabs king as a human shield (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which i thought was a was a great touch but yeah it sets up that that uh um hog pen match of course um so that's uh that's one to look forward to um heart eyes emoji (laughs) So, uh, the the one match you and Mazza could agree on. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as you mentioned earlier on, the Smoking Guns um, defeat 1-2-3 Kid and Razor Ramon in a tag match. This is part of, of Kid and Razor's wider storyline. Obviously, yeah. you know, their arc throughout the entire era until they both departed, but also their mini arc in 1995 and early 1996 where you know, eventually the friction between them and the making up and then the friction between them and it's all kind of building. And basically they do a very similar thing with um, uh, with Owen and Bulldog in, in 96, 97, but then the, in the end they didn't break them up. Um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a good good tag match. I mean, you think like, you know, Bart and Billy were the, the, the prime team of the era, Kid and, and Razor, big man, little man. There's a load of great spots where Razor like picks kids up and throws him at the guns and stuff like that. And it's it's very, very good stuff. Um, very, very enjoyable tag wrestling. Um, 
So it's, it's almost it almost like you know Razor and Kid in this match. It almost is a bit like the revival if one of them was a high flyer. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Um, I think it's the the aggressiveness of it helps it make it make it feel like it's a hugely important match, and that, and that I think goes a long way, uh, as well as the fact that you have both sides kind of. Um, a sort of a, a creeping amorality to their to their ring games. Nothing, you know, nothing particularly pronounced, but it's there in, in inflections. I think, and you're going to love me for saying this. I think that Waltman One Two Three Kid really steals the show in it. Um, he's a bit like an obnoxious teen. You know, these obnoxious teen pop stars. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, he plays that role very, very well, um, and. Uh, it, it it just works, you know, and then and then the way that they build the conclusion as well, where he wants to get the cocky win, um, but he cocks it all up, you know, and then he, he kind of basically just fully fledged turns heel after the fact as a result, you know, and, and raises the one who has to sort of play peacekeeper. It's just it's marvelously intoned character work at the back end of a of a of a a very, very competitive, greatly aggressive kind of big match feel tag bout. Uh, that's that's peppered with character as well. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, new gen firing on all cylinders in in a lot of ways. It's it's really worth checking out, I think. And I think, you know, I always really like it when the tag team, the big tag team, beats the two big single stars. Yeah, like it's always how it should be. Um, Attitude used to do it really, really well. They'd always put the outlaws in a a main event spot against some sort of thrown together team involving, you know, Austin or somebody, and more often than not, you know, the Outlaws have come out on top because if you put your top tag team up against two of your single stars, the continuity of the tag team should trump it. Um, and that's that's exactly how it should be. So, um, yeah, really, really good stuff. All right. So next we've got, I mean, a really fascinating historical moment. There's the debut mm-hmm. of Goldust. Um, and it's worth talking about him for a minute just because obviously the, the guy's still going for one thing. I mean, Christ. Uh, but Vince had such a, a knack of just now and again realising who his audience were and coming up with a gimmick that would piss them off the most. And, you know, you think how far ahead of its time the gold dust gimmick truly was. And, you know, it just freaks people the hell out. Um, and... You know, Vince knew that his a lot of his audience were very uncomfortable with um, with any sort of uh, difference in gender or sexuality or anything like that. And, you know, the Goldust character played into all of that, um, as well as just as being so sort of visually striking and having such a, a, a sort of, you know, strongly defined sense of character for the moment, uh, the moment he arrived. So, um, uh like you consider how dull Dustin Rhodes was in WCW, um, you know he was essentially just that he was the most kind of you know white meat type of basic baby face in a pair of pants you've ever seen, and then he shows up and he does this and it's it's incredible really. It's a, it, Goldust is 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 very very difficult for me to. Um sort of analyze because he obviously a product of its time the character um and so you would expect a, um a certain degree of intonation in the way it's presented that just doesn't fly today um 
and there are there are you know there are issues for me um regardless of whether they're historical or not uh, about the way that that character you know played out i think you'd be just as justified to call it regressive as you would ahead of its time quite honestly but having said all of that the interesting thing about this particular first sort of debut of him is because I think that the element of Goldust that gets forgotten is the fact that it, it was kind of two characters blended together to begin with because you had the homoerotica on the one hand that was perhaps the, the lasting historical memory of this early version of him. Um, people don't talk so much about the fact that he was presented as a cinephile as yeah, well very yeah. early on and obsessed with movies and quoting films in his in his in his promos and stuff. And it always felt very strange because, and, and indeed gold dust, you know, he was supposed to look a bit like an Oscar statue. Um, and it was a bit strange because they never really kind of married the two together. It was just sort of two separate facets of, of the character's personality at play. Um, and I think what stands out about this first match against Marty Gennetti of all people, um, it, to me at least it feels very much like a character that's still kind of developing there's no real sense of the homoeroticism here that that would come to sort of define his feud with razor ramon for example and then obviously feuds after the fact um and it and it feels like he's not so much bizarre because obviously he would go on to be known as the bizarre one he's not so much bizarre here he's, he's opaque he's difficult to read you don't really know what he's about or how to take him. You've certainly not seen anything like him before. Um, and it's interesting as well to see him um, sort of mute. I mean, there's no, there's no real trash talk in there or anything. Um, maybe that adds to the, to the opaqueness of the character in this early, um, well, in this pay-per-view day, it might even be his, his, debut full stop i'm not sure about that i'd have to fact check that but um you know and the match itself it's i mean it's a little overlong uh it's a little uh, early gold dust is strange to watch for me uh, putting aside any consternation about the character in terms of the ring work i'm it's always a bit hit and miss for me because there are matches that i think he has that are tremendous and then there are other ones that feel a bit lethargic and, and kind of slow moving the taker um, one in particular yeah is, is um, quite bad but this one uh, feels to me outside of the, uh, I mean, it's kind of the point, so you can't really say outside of this, but outside of the, you know, the striking character that's being presented, the match itself doesn't really feel like it's up to much. I think a lot to chew on there. Like, I think the film thing uh, they did quite well with, with obviously the WrestleMania 12 with the Hollywood backlot brawl and, um, you know, I remember in 97, you know, he was always kind of uh, shown with, um, oh, God, what was his wife's name? Forget now. That's mad that I've forgotten that. Uh, Terry Runnels. Yes, but what was that character? Melina? No. Oh, uh, it began with M. Yeah. But they, uh, they, were always, they were always shown together, and she always had the big cigar and was like his agent, basically. Marlena. Marlena, that's it. That's like. The- um, she she was obviously shown as being the agent and had the big cigar and it was almost like a kind of like good looking version of um, 
Uh, you know, like the uh, Joey's agent character. For I was Brent. just about to say <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. Estelle. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so it's it's that that side of it was they kind of kept that going long after they'd kind of decreased um, the homerosism stuff. I mean, the Razor, the Razor feud is the one where that really, as you say, is, is really hyped up. Um, and they played on that idea of Razor's character being all about machismo, and that's why he was uncomfortable with it. And that is like deeply, you know, deeply difficult to watch nowadays, and actually was at the time, quite honestly. Um, but Vince knew his audience, and he knew that that would get a reaction out of them, and that was always Vince's kind of motivation, I suppose. Um, I mean, the, the gold dust that I really find sort of difficult to get on board with is actually the artist formerly known as Goldust <laughs> era, which yeah. is horrendous. Like me and Maz yeah. watched it for Attitude and it was like truly like only Vince could come up with that idea of what BDSM is really like and put it in a, in a wrestling show. Like it was like truly, trually bad. Like Luna Bashan as his ballet and it was absolutely horrible. Um, and then there's the other bit where, where he suddenly becomes like a born again Christian and starts like you know sort of walking around with signs, almost like Drew Gulak, like walking around with signs saying like you know that everyone's a sinner and stuff. So lots of uh, lots of weird stuff going on with Goldust, I suppose. He really was bizarre. Um, but yeah, as you say, this is pretty much a a match to showcase him as a, as a debut, and that's why you put a reliable hand like Marty Jannetty in there with him. Um, but yeah, he would obviously be you know one of the most important heels through the whole of 96. And then, of course, in 97, he'd have the face turn because Triple H and China um, targeting him and Melina on the way to uh, WrestleMania 13. In your house, Final Four. What a show. What a show. Um, that muscle woman just grabbed mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Vince, that muscle woman. Soul Woman. <laughs> Fantastic. Like that Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Amazon. Oh, fantastic. Um so uh obviously the next match is not anything to write home about. Um King Mabel v Yokozuna, probably the the two of them at their biggest. Um barely able really to move either of them. Um ends the double count now, which is about the most traditional super heavyweight match you can have really yeah i mean it's it i'm just looking through my notes here historical notes here and it says uh i've written exactly the match you picture in your head yeah which uh, <laughs> that's a, um, an apt summary <laughs> um so i can i can envision it in my head i mean I, I would imagine that the you know just the spectacle of seeing two huge guys like that face one another down is is something in itself isn't it but um yeah, I mean, there's there's not a lot to say here. Interesting that it's heel versus heel, I suppose. Uh, you know, New Gen Show, and it's not afraid to to try those um, those sort of little experiments with with traditional ideas. Uh, and I, I knows everyone knows me. Everyone who knows me knows I'm a big fan of heel versus heel as a concept. So uh, there's there's that going for it. Um, but yeah, otherwise, I mean, it's interesting because I think it's beware of dog that. Or, or somewhere around there that Yoko faces Vader in the middle of 96. And it's only like about a minute or two minutes long. Um, but that's done really, really well. And that's when Yoko is even bigger than he is here. But this is, yeah, this is, it is what it is. 
He's not got long left with the company now, has he? When's he go? Like middle of '96? Yeah, around the middle of '96. Yeah. Mad to think, isn't it? Like what what he could have been had he say stayed. You know, the the size and mobility that he was at, at WrestleMania nine. You know. Um, well, yeah. Well, this is it, and it's sad that the prevailing memory of him probably is that that extreme version of him, sort of around '96 time, uh, and that. Because I think people do vastly underestimate, um, you know, how athletic he was in 93 and 94. I mean, he was a wrestling workhorse classic. You wouldn't expect him to. But for a man of his size, he was uh, he had such a great command of of his character. uh, And he had such a great command of operating in that kind of difference making impact player type of wrestling style. Um, And together, the two made magic. Well, he was, you know, he was from obviously the, the, the famous Samoan wrestling families and he, um, you know, kind of obviously didn't begin that size. He put on that weight to convincingly portray that character. And really, like, if you think about the ethics of the whole thing, it's always been something that's not, not sat particularly well with me, you know, and they probably at some point just should have got him, you know, should have slimmed him down and said, okay, you know, like, because he, he obviously would have been able to do all that athletic stuff that all of his brothers and cousins did, um, were it not for the fact that, that he kind of put on all that weight. And then as far as the story goes, basically became addicted to food. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think is it in Brett's book or someone, mm. someone's book like that, he talks about how he, he began to actively aim to become the heaviest wrestler of all time, I think. Late in his career, which um, is which is mad when you think about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, quite. Um, I mean, I, I just felt like I just uh, found here that he actually at one point got up to seven hundred and sixty pounds on the <laughs> on, on the independent circuit uh, just before his death, which is just absolutely um, mad. I mean, he died at thirty four. I mean, that's just Young, younger than yourself, I believe. <laughs> yeah, by quite a long way. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> oh. so like, well, by five years anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's mad to consider that that that, that he was that young. Um, and very a very sad story. I mean, as is the case with many wrestlers of the period, unfortunately. Um, all right. So Razor and Dean, we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, already, um, so we won't we won't dwell on it too much here. Um, I mean, I just think that the biggest disappointment for me is that the match at the previous show was really really good, um, and actually was a, a pretty good showcase for for Dean Douglas. And here it's kind of backstage politics, um, massively acting against him. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's. I think that's, you know, after everything we talked about earlier, that's one thing we didn't mention is the fact that you do feel a little bit robbed of a great match as well. And the one thing that, uh, you know, the clique could always b- accurately boast about is the fact that they could put on great matches. So when they're not even doing that, you know, it feels kind of like you're being you're being cheated as well. Um, but yeah, it's... It, it, Look, we, we covered it mostly earlier on, didn't we? I mean, it's a shame that Douglas spends the vast majority of it on the back foot. Um, it's a shame he sort of, this is basically the death knell for him. You don't really seem to do a great deal of anything after the fact. Um, 
interested to consider what history might have been like in the next few months had he have uh, gone on to have a reign as intercontinental champion or some such. Um, you'd imagine eventually he'd have ended up resting Brett at some point. But uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a bit of a wasted opportunity. Um, it's a bit of a perhaps because you, you at this point we're all very well aware of the circumstances behind why Sean forfeits the title. Um, you know, it, it kind of it's it's a very ingratiating moment before the match when Sean surrenders the championship as well, and the whole thing is a presentation that just doesn't feel worthy of those involved, quite honestly, and that's sad. Uh, but is also um, notable historically for Razor Ramon becoming the first ever four-time Intercontinental Champion. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Like, um, I, I, f- I feel like um, I, there's a conspiracy theory here too, isn't there, that actually Michaels wasn't actually that badly hurt and um, uh, had a makeup artist <laughs> yeah. make his injuries look worse because he just didn't want to drop the belt to Douglas. <laughs> That, that, that's that's uh, that's that's one of the conspiracy theories I seem I seem to remember, um, but yeah. So I mean, obviously he he uh, he's in Survivor Series, Douglas, isn't he? He's in the wild card match, um, and then he's I think he leaves in December, roughly. But yeah, it's 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 a uh, it's silly really because the the guy had success everywhere else that he was, and so he clearly was a good talent. But it was one of those ones. Well, I suppose that was the click going. Oh, this guy can't work, and then. You know, every yeah. now and, every now and again, you'd get like a punk that just completely proved them wrong. But um, sometimes their uh, combined political weight had uh, has a bit too much um, oomph behind it, I suppose. Indeed, a shame. Yeah, a deep shame. Um, all right, and then of and course, to the, and to the detriment of the pay per view as well, quite honestly, because it means that you don't have a strong semi main event, so you get a week in your house pay per view because of it. I think. It's certainly one of the weaker shows we've looked at, I'd say. Yep. Um, so, yeah, Bulldog and Diesel, 18-minute um, uh, match. Um, and I think you put it very aptly before that, you know, Bulldog can match Diesel for power, but Diesel can't match him for speed, which makes it quite an interesting matchup. Um, it is it is a good match. I, I did really, really enjoy it. Um, I feel like it could have been even better. And, of course, they... You know, they run a load of, of, of Brett stuff, which makes it really obvious that really the end game is, is, is Brett v. Diesel, which makes makes Bulldog's sort of um, challenger of the month effort here a little bit devalued in my eyes. I get that, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> the uh, It's interesting because this is sort of the start of where you see Bulldog become, um, you know, a pretty permanent member of that top flight of the roster you know he main events here he main events in december uh he's main evented again in the spring of the following year uh, and he's he's featured in some pretty prominent matches uh, between those points as well so um you know it's it this is kind of where bulldog begins his stint as the uh, as one of the top proper top guys properly top guys and is where people perhaps should um most uh, most voraciously remind themselves of actually what he did accomplish at his peak. But um, the match itself is one that's always left me a little bit cold, to be quite honest. Maybe that's because I'm judging it unfairly against expectations of what you know these two men could be able to do. And whether it's a kind of a lack of chemistry or a, like you sort of intimate, a, sort of almost a lack of energy or attention because of knowing where we are headed to, which is the poster feud of the entire era between 
Brett and Diesel. Um, I don't know. It just feels like there's a lot left on the table, um, and it and it feels a little bit unimaginative compared to stuff that we'd see the two guys do with other opponents um, of of comparative um, uh, comparative ilk, um, as it were. To use a, a, a term from <laughs> that in a while. <laughs> Pond's history. Um, I don't know, but uh, I mean, I think that for me, that the real fun here is the fact that Brett's on commentary. Uh, and you get that shared universe interaction between the three of them. You know, Brett has confrontations with Bulldog and Diesel both. There's a real sense of everyone being in it for themselves that carries on the kind of the aggressiveness we've seen from Brett through the entire year. It's cool that before he gets to that main event, there's this kind of period, this this month here where he doesn't have an undercard match for once. He's He's gone through... You know he's he's wrestled his way up through the the roster throughout the entire year, and bef- just as sort of a prologue to his to his final championship match, he gets to to sort of he sits on commentary and has kind of a cameo first. I just think there's something really cool about that steady introduction, um, and it, and it's it adds to the narrative of his year as well that he's had this kind of um, this this month where he's commentating as the number one contender before he actually gets the title shot. Um, that it's it's little touches like that that I miss, you know, in an age where everyone has to have a match on every pay-per-view because of an inability to think outside of the box. It's that sort of stuff that um, that can often uh, leave everything feeling so colourless. So um, general thoughts are that the match always fi- leaves me feeling a little bit disappointed. But again, the the more conceptual storytelling, I think, is typically fantastic. Yeah, they do a similar thing with the commentary idea when they had uh you know a year later pretty much when they had michael indeed uh do that for brett the uh sid sid of course yeah and 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 that worked really well too in terms of that that general narrative building up of brett being screwed all the time that should lead to the heel turn um yeah it always works well the whole the whole commentary thing um you know i mean samoa joe is doing commentary on raw at the moment but he's apparently you know ready to come back they could do something like that with him if they uh had the same creative brains as they as they did. Huh. <laughs> um, if they had any creative brains, yeah, that's fair. Um, so it is. It is. I think, as we've said, uh, one of the weaker shows we've looked at. I think it begins very well for the first two matches in particular, and then it kind of it it does peter out in the middle, and then the, the main event is good, but you know, kind of frustrating because it could have been even better. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that that's pretty spot on, to be quite honest. Um, and it's and it's derailed because of, like we were saying earlier, um, it feels like anyway a, an overabundance of um, of click influence. But uh, look, we're talking about 1995, a year that most people would say is the worst year in WWE's history, and this is the first time that really we've been anywhere near sort of so negative about one of the pay-per-views of the year so i think it's still getting a pretty good hit rate in there it's just and this one's as you just said you know i mean it starts off brilliantly um it just kind of loses its way halfway through but i would still say it's never anything worse than than good yeah no absolutely it's, it's certainly certainly um it's no disgrace but, you know goodness knows it's uh it's just kind of not quite the level of some of the others that we've seen and, and they were still really building what the in your house brands would be i know we said last time that in your house three felt like a bit of a coming of age but you know uh they ended up being 20 odd of them so 
you know, it's not that surprising that they were um, finding their feet a little bit still. Indeed. All right, so it's a pretty, pretty good place to finish this off. So do listen to the rest of LAP Radio shows and do, of course, uh, listen to uh, all of our back shows as well. And uh, we'll be back next week uh, to talk about Survivor Series 1995. So from the right side of the pond, we will see you next time. Bye. At First Commonwealth Bank, we understand that many of today's businesses are facing uncertain times. And that means there's no more important time for having the right financial partner behind you. A partner with the resources and experience to help take care of your business. An SBA preferred lender who can see what others may not and do what others cannot. If you're ready to talk with a financial partner who can help your business today and into the future, there's no better time to talk with us. First Commonwealth Bank, member FDIC. At First Commonwealth Bank, we understand that many of today's businesses are facing uncertain times. And that means there's no more important time for having the right financial partner behind you. A partner with the resources and experience to help take care of your business. An SBA preferred lender who can see what others may not and do what others cannot. If you're ready to talk with a financial partner who can help your business today and into the future, there's no better time to talk with us. First Commonwealth Bank, member FDIC.